Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black Ann, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. This episode, we're excited to feature a conversation with Hannah Riley of the Southern Center for Human Rights. She has done a ton of work in the area of the death penalty and the Innocence Project, and her specialty is the problems with the death penalty, and and she gives a bunch of great examples of why it's so problematic and why it should be abolished. So April, I think it's worth noting before we uh, dive into the interview with Hannah that since we recorded this interview, uh, the federal... Department of Justice has reinstated the federal death penalty as wow. re- death penalty as a as a punishment for federal crimes. Um, it whereas it was it was left up to the states before that. It sort of politically is a strong statement for the federal government to reinstate something that we all know has so many problems and so many flaws um, that they used to be able to say this is just up to the states. Um, the federal government doesn't really have much of a role in this. Now the federal government is, as, has rolled it out as a, a platform item. We are, going, we are instituting the death penalty again for certain crimes, for certain federal crimes. It's just a wild sort of archaic step backwards. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> you're just shaking your... All the listeners, April is just shaking her head. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely think it's something that folks should keep in mind while listening to this interview on the death penalty and the problems with it. But before we get to all that, April, what's on your mind? So I've been talking with some of my neighbors lately um, here in South Philadelphia, particularly the white ones. And, you know, I note the things that they say about our neighborhood, and a lot of it leans toward the negative. So my neighborhood is very quickly gentrifying. I live on a very diverse street. In South Philly, we have a mix of uh, races and culture and ages, families and single folks, and it's, it's very diverse. You know, years ago, decades ago, it was an all-black community. The streets and the stories I hear about people who have lived there all their lives, um, you know, they talk about knowing all their neighbors, um, getting together as a neighborhood, as a community. But again, it was all-black, mostly middle-to-lower-class folks. That is changing very rapidly. Week to week, um, there are more white people moving into my neighborhood. There are more houses, larger houses being built every week. People who can no longer afford the rent that is steadily rising are moving out. And so my neighborhood is changing basically from black to white. And so in talking with some of my neighbors, the ones who I know are either have just moved in or um, are thinking about, you know, buying property around South Philly, the way they talk about the neighborhood is often really problematic. I've heard phrases like, you know, this area is like a war zone or, you know, there's a shooting every other night. I've heard people refer to the kids who play on the street, refer to them as in packs or in, you know, gangs, gangs. or, oh, yeah, yeah things like that, that which take, which, you know, take away their their humanity and, and the communal aspect of the neighborhood of people and hanging their, out on the streets. And their innocence as kids. And their kids, yeah. <laughs> um, and it made me think... Um, on a larger scale, these are folks who, you know, we, we talk about politics who I, I know um, are uh, progressive thinkers often. For the most part, they try to be who are very anti-Trump. Oh, I know are, where you're going with this. Yeah, who are, um, 
who would really consider themselves progressive and inclusive, even though I hate that word. So <laughs> I Top, really do. Topic for another time. Yes, I, I hate that word. You're in, including you're them including in me what? Yeah. as a human. Gotcha. Anyway. Gotcha. Agreed. Um, so when Trump says things like um, he refers to countries as shithole countries or he tells people who don't look like him to go back to their infested or, you know, crime-infested cities. Or most recently, when he was speaking about um, Congressman Elijah Cummings and his terrible, you know, crime-infested, rat-infested Baltimore city, how he should clean it up and go back there. And he said no human being would want to live there. Yeah, cool, great. And so, you know, these people in my neighborhood who I've spoken with would hate that would hate those things that that Trump is saying and would and would think they're you know vile and racist but here they are talking about our own neighborhood using that same language and the connection there Hmm. is lost on a personal level and it's it's something that's difficult to point out because these are my neighbors and you know I want to be cool with them but as white people I think it's really important that you make the, the, the personal connection um, of how you are influencing your neighborhoods and how you are um, participating in changing neighborhoods in, in gentrification and pushing people out. And when you refer to you know, neighborhoods as a war zone or right. when you dehumanize the people who live there, that's no different from what Trump is doing. It's the same kind of... It's the same racism. It's the same racism. It's... My way of life is better. Other people and how they live, people of color, you know, that's not good. So it's, yeah, it's been really interesting. That connection is, is lost. And I'm, I'm, you know, working on, on how to speak to that to some of my neighbors. I was going to say, have you talked to any of them about that or is it? So I feel like I'll, I'll, what I do in situations like that, which, cause I hear that, that same stuff all the time and I didn't put together those examples of like what Trump said and we can all sort of agree that those are racist things some people can't actually which is crazy yeah. but um, but most people can agree that these are sort of racist statements that he made on a large level as president I've heard those very similar statements coming from neighbors as well and I just sort of try to say like when someone says oh did you see that like gang of kids come through it's like oh do you mean like that school play group like or that or that like young you know, baseball team that was coming through or the like, and sort of using your own language to counteract them by like asking quote unquote questions of them to clarify. Yeah. And I think, you know, because calling them out, because calling them to be clear, because saying that's really racist. You shouldn't say that and slamming your door in their face. That people shut down. You'd be within your rights to do that. Mm -hmm. But right. Yeah. And I've, you know, the angry black woman that yelled at them. So, and a lot of it, which is really frustrating, um, when I hear people talk about, you know, all the, the crime and the violence and they're scared, I ask them about their personal experiences. Have you have you seen someone get shot Are recently? Because this have gang you attacked been you. Attacked? <laughs> Do you know someone who's been attacked? No, well, you know, I, on the news, you know, I saw that that it happens a lot. Oh, God. But it's like, come the on. Local news. Come on, people. I need you to dig deeper. They're like, yeah, you know, they ride their bikes around. Right. It's like, right. Like children do. Eight. Right. <laughs> like. It's, you know, it's it's reintroducing, this sounds so pathetic, but it's reminding people of the humanity in others. Hmm. People who don't look like you, who 
in, in these situations who often don't have as much money as you and who are not white like you are humans. And they do life differently With from you. With all the rights and privileges and respect that you think you have, mm-hmm. they have it too. They have them too. They have a right to live in the communities that they do. They have a right to have parties on the street. They have a right to ride their bikes in the street. And you have a right to to do it with them, to join them. Right. And so that it's just wild that like that type of racist language that we are identifying as something that Donald Trump says and we can all assume we all sort of most of us can can agree on that that your lang- your your neighbors expressing that language is in the midst of them doing another largely damaging, largely racist action of gentrifying a neighborhood which um Again, that's something we could talk about for a long time. Gentrify- gentrification is something I'm so torn about because I take part in it for sure. Um, so do you, living on the street. Um, and so... But also experiencing the effects of it. You know, in a couple right. years, I won't be able to afford my house. Right. The house that I rent. It just won't. It'll I, be too expensive. I'll be right. priced out. Y'all have to move. And another thing that um, commenting largely on neighborhoods does, just like with Trump's comments, you know, when he calls places, shithole countries, that's painting a picture of an entire country in one way as a shithole. And everyone can, you know, have that own imagery in their head. And it's the same with, you know, my street when it's called a war zone. You're painting a picture as if I live with monsters and tanks all around. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many different types of people on my street. Um, Families, like I said, single folks, People who, you know, have money, people who don't, people, you know, black, white, Asian, Latinx people. It can't be so simplified. And now we're seeing the destruction of those communities, and it's really sad. It's just wild that, like, going back to what you sort of originally started with this, is that, like, these common, commonly racist tropes that go back to where you came from, the whole crime-infested neighborhood of X, Y, and Z, knowing that you're talking about a black neighborhood, no human would want to live there. Like, that's all, like, what you're hearing, that's, we, we agree on that, that, that when the president says that, it's racist, but you're hearing it from, like, relatively well-meaning, like, quote-unquote, woke, quote-unquote, not racist white people who are moving into neighborhoods with people who don't look like them. And it's just, it's example number, you know, 560 of why intent isn't a prerequisite for racism Mm -hmm. um, because the stuff that your neighbors are saying is racist period two spaces Mm -hmm. I'm a one space person actually now I'm a one spacer too okay Um, period right like this is racist it's the same sentiment that Trump is saying right um he intends it. And he intends they it. And don't. They, and, they, and they identify what he's saying as racist, exactly. but not what they're saying. Right. Um, yeah. So. Both racist, different intents, equally problematic. So that's what was on my mind this week. After the break, we will have our interview with Hannah Riley. And we're back, ready to discuss the death penalty with Hannah Riley. 
Hannah is a writer. Uh, she's also the communications manager with the Southern Center for Human Rights. Hannah has done lots of work with the death penalty, uh, death row, and wrongful convictions. So we're really excited to talk to you, Hannah. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, too. We have a lot to learn, I think, about this portion of the criminal justice system, your your specialty with folks who are, are condemned to die and, and who are currently on death row. And that's what a lot of what we will talk about, I think, today will circulate around. But I'd love to just sort of dive in and have you sort of tell us uh, about your current roles and your uh, the current organizations that you're affiliated with. Sure. So I'm the communications manager at the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is a legal nonprofit based in Atlanta, Georgia. And Southern Center does a lot of things. Um, our main goals are to we represent people facing the death penalty in Georgia and Alabama. And we are hoping to end the death penalty, the criminalization of poverty and other practices that are used to control the lives of people of color and poor people. And I also do work with the Georgia Innocence Project, which, as you might guess from the name, is also a legal nonprofit that works to exonerate uh, people who've been wrongfully convicted in the state of Georgia. So obviously in our pod here, we focus on the roles that race and racism play um, in different aspects of our society and our government and the death penalty. Can you tell our listeners how uh, race impacts those who are going to be put to death and those who have been put to death? Yeah. So let's do a, a brief historical dive. Um, <laughs> it's really important to acknowledge that capital punishment in this country is a direct offshoot of lynching and other forms of racial violence and terror, primarily in the American South. So in the mid-1800s, the mid so pre-Civil War, um, a number of northern states moved to keep the death penalty on the books, but only for murder. Beforehand, it was used for any number of offenses, and a few abolished it entirely. Um, but this wasn't feasible in the South because of slavery. Capital punishment was seen as a really critical way to continue to maintain control over slaves. Mm. So after the Civil War, Southern criminal codes actually allowed crimes to be punishable based on the race of the defendant and the race of the victim. So, for example, in Georgia, laws provided that the rape of a white woman by a black man was punishable by death, whereas the rape of a white woman by anyone else was punishable by a prison term of, I think, no more than 20 years. And then the rape of a black woman was punishable by fine and imprisonment at the discretion of the court. So very, very different. Lynching was used to maintain white power after the Civil War, and historians trace lynching, which sort of became seen as, as messy and attracted bad press to the modern death penalty. So a lot of critics say that lynchings basically became legal and they just moved indoors. So... Another really important thing is that um, the chief prosecutors in all death penalty states are overwhelmingly white. Maybe 1% are black. And the same is true of judges, often defense attorneys, and, and even juries. So in, in the earliest 20th century, when the death penalty was still being used for the crime of rape, Almost 90% of executions involved black defendants, mostly mm. for the rape of a white woman. And in the modern era, when executions have been carried out mostly exclusively for murder, 
75% involve the murder of a white victim, even though, you know, black people and white people are about equally likely to be victims of murder. So I think the statistics are 55% of people who have been executed in this country are white and 34% are black. Meanwhile, the population, I think, is 13% nationally is black. Right. And the race of victims in death penalty cases is overwhelmingly white. It's more than 75%, and I believe it's 15% black. So are you hinting that our justice system may be (laughs) sort of racist? Just a slight hint, yes. Just a little bit, huh? Just centuries of proof that that is the case. Wow. Yeah. So a, a bias towards white victim cases has been found in essentially every study that has ever explored this over many, many years. And these are studies that control for other variables, um, like the number of victims or the, the brutality of the crime. And they still find that defendants are far more likely to be sentenced to death if a white person was killed. There have been 21, ex- so there have been 1,500, I believe, executions since 1976 in the United States. And there have been only 21 where there was a white defendant and a black victim. Wow. Wow. And that's, total. that's nationwide. Okay. Wow. Yep. Yep. Just like having a hard time processing yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you, the work that you've done in, you know, you know, either in prisons, you know, with people's stories or through Mm -hmm. the organizations that you've worked for or worked with. um, Are those, are the folks that you're seeing, and we can focus on death row and the death penalty, are the folks that you're seeing um, meeting those statistics? Is that, is it about what you, is that, are you seeing the, you know, in real life, the statistics that you've just told us in terms of most of these people being being people of color, et cetera? Yes. Yes. And that's something that... Yeah. I mean, there... I also should say that there are no wealthy people on death row, and there are Mm -hmm. no wealthy people that have ever been executed in this country. Um, The people who are facing the death penalty are uniformly people, vulnerable people, often suffering from very serious mental illness or... Um, even there've been multiple instances of people with developmental disabilities, you know, significant brain damage, just very vulnerable people are executed in this country and poor people are executed in this country. And that's, that's borne out every day in my work. Um, the Steve Bright, who was the longtime president of the Southern Center for Human Rights, where I work, um, likes to say that the courts are the part of American society least impacted by the civil rights movement. And hmm. and he's right. You know, a lot of courtrooms in the South today don't look much different than they did in the 1950s. The judge is wow. white. The prosecutors are white. Your court appointed lawyers are white. And like I said, a lot of times um, the jury is white purposefully. Well, you mentioned the South. I mean, if anyone asked me just off the street, which states would be the worst culprits um, of, you know, generally just the number of executions Mm -hmm. or and the um, executions exemplifying, you know, racial disparity. Is is it in fact the South that are the states that are, are the worst in this way? Yes, very much so. The death penalty is very geographically clustered. So in terms of just total number of people executed, 
Texas is by far the worst. Um, I believe there have been over 550 people executed there. Um, and just to give it a little bit of relevance, the next highest number, which is, I think, Virginia, followed very closely by Oklahoma, are a comparatively small numbers of 113 and 112 people, respectively. So Texas and in Texas, just again, to show you how clustered this is, just four counties in Texas were responsible for essentially half of all executions. And then Texas itself as a state is responsible for functionally one third of all executions in the U.S. since 1976. So Texas is a big one. Virginia, Oklahoma, Florida, Missouri, Georgia, Alabama, if you're sensing a pattern. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think something like 55 percent of black people, I'll say, live in southern sta- live in in what states, are considered yeah. southern southern states, not, yes. not just those three in particular. But um, but yeah, they're, those are you've all of these states at issue are notorious um, states where slavery was a was yep. a thriving part of the economy. Virginia was one of the worst offenders, I would say. It was the in terms mm-hmm. of fugitive slave laws and it was the capital of the confederacy and yeah. Was, yeah. With, you know. with numbers like that texas i mean it, it seems like not only it is this deliberate but it is there even a sense of pride in that i mean i think so that's, yeah oh, that's that was what, that was a, it's a part of the identity that was yeah. a george w bush thing like he when mm-hmm. he came to be president you know, to serve on the national level after being governor of Texas. He, that, I remember that being a thing that was uh, uh, tough on crime. Yeah. You know, and he had put more people to death under his watch than like, I think the last three governors combined or something like that. Something crazy Jeez. from Texas. Yeah. Again, saying something into a microphone might not be 100% accurate, <laughs> but I think that's, it's something like that. But if memory serves. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of baked into the state identity. Even, even though, as a whole, you know, people are not, the general public is increasingly not interested in the death penalty. Right. You know, there there have not been that many new death sentences, at least in Georgia. Um, a lot of, you know, juries are moving away from that in favor of life without parole, which is <laughs> a podcast for another day, perhaps. Right, but, right. Yes. but yeah, generally public sentiment um, is increasingly opposed to the death penalty. So, this is one of those things where, to me, it is a most people think of the death penalty as, you know, as a policy as not be on its face a racist policy the same way other thing the same way redlining is racist. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. You just explained to us how, yes, of course, it is based it is rooted in something that is very racist. The killing yes. of, of black men for crimes, usually um, a lot of the time perpetuated against white women in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, so the notion that the death penalty is is not a racist policy to me isn't really something that flies anymore um no. but a lot of i think a lot of people would disagree with me a lot of people say, and with you and would say if you don't you know if you murder someone you forfeited your right your right to live so what is your best sort of argument for look this should be outlawed the death penalty should be something that we should not be instituting at all, but it, yeah. but because, because of the racial implications of it and the inherent racism to it. Um, yeah. and I guess maybe some examples would be helpful maybe of, of instances where you have seen these sort of miscarriages happen in real time. If you have them off the top of your head. 
Yeah. So I, I think it's it's worth saying that it is well known and well documented. There is no way to debate this, that a person of color is more likely than a white person to be stopped by police, first of all. Um, they're more likely to be abused during that stop. They're more likely to be arrested after the stop. They're more likely to be denied bail when they're brought to court. They're more likely to receive a severe sentence. And this you is know, everything of, else being equal. This is every, yes. their history, their, yep. the fact pattern, all that being equal. Yep. All that being equal. I mean, that is, it's, it's a fact. And this is borne out in decades worth of research. Um, so if somebody isn't willing to engage with that as a truth, then honestly, I don't engage with them. Right. I I have found in in my own advocacy that instead of attempting to convince someone on a moral level, which I very much believe that we do not have the authority to kill, the government should not have that that power. Hmm. Um, but this is you know slightly depressing, but. By far the most impactful argument, and um, I think something that has been chewing at these death sentences over the past few years, really decreasing them, is that the death penalty, like every other human process in the criminal legal system, is is fallible. And there have now been, I believe, 166 exonerations. So these are people who went to trial, they were sentenced to death, and then they were found innocent for whatever reason. And that's that's the tip of the iceberg of the number of people who are actually innocent and were sent to die. Right. And that has been, in my work, the most the most impactful argument against capital punishment. Hmm. Do I think that that is the most morally moving? No. But is that what people have have latched onto more than anything? Yes. Hmm. It's expensive too, isn't it? You'd think that yes. that'd be a good argument for people. It's incredibly you know, expensive. If, if you don't care about other life, maybe you'll just you know care about the money it costs to take the yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. There was a study out of California which had an enormous death row, despite the fact I think they've. They've only executed 13 people, only being, of course, relative to all of these other these states in the U.S. Um, but they've had a number of people on their death row, and they spent over $4 billion since the late 70s on keeping people there. Jeez. I mean, that is a phenomenal waste of money. Speaking and speaking of money, you mentioned this earlier. So you mentioned the criminalization of poverty, right? Mm -hmm. Um what do you mean when you say that? So you said that po poverty and economics are a bigger sort of indic are a big indicator of mm -hmm. who ends up on death row. What do you mean by that? Isn't murder just sort of murder? Isn't it? If no matter who you are, if you kill someone, you know, you're you should be tried for murder. Isn't that that's what a lot of mm. people think? I would imagine, right? Yes. So. The criminalization of poverty, as, as we look at it at the Southern Center, I'm going to give just a quick example. Um, we represented a man who had been standing on the street in Atlanta holding a sign that said, homeless, please help. And because there's a city ordinance against um, asking pedestrians for money, standing on the sidewalk, panhandling, as it's called in the ordinance, he was arrested and he was brought to the Atlanta City Jail and he was given a bail, I believe, of $500, which he couldn't pay. So he ended up 
languishing in a cage for the better part of four months until someone at the Southern Center realized that he was there and sent this letter and he was immediately released. But every single day, jail cells are full of people who are there simply because they cannot pay their bail, they can't pay their fines or fees. Um, I mean, they're debtors' prisons. That that has not left this country. Um, and obviously, in that instance, we're talking about not very serious offenses, ordinance violations, misdemeanors. Um, but when it comes to the death penalty, like I said before, there is no wealthy person on death row. And the amount of money in your bank account, which of course dictates the caliber of an attorney that you can hire, is by far the best indicator of whether or not you're going to receive a death sentence. So that's another big argument that I utilize, and I'm sure you do as well, that like mm-hmm. there are a bunch of people out there doing murder, <laughs> like actually <laughs> committing murders that have yes. the means to do it and not and know that they're not going to face any consequence for it. So the whole notion that yep. this is deterring uh, punishment, that the, this, the death penalty needs to be in place because it will make people not uh, want to do this because of fear of their own life being taken is just not a realistic argument. No, it's a false premise. I mean, again, there is decades worth of research that shows the death penalty is not a deterrent whatsoever. There's no data to back that up. In fact, in a lot of states, there's often an inverse correlation where death penalty states and death penalty counties specifically often have higher crime rates than states and counties that don't utilize the death penalty. So there's mm-hmm. no argument for it being a deterrent. It's just it doesn't stand in 2019. Do you know why that might be the the opposite effect being the case? I think that that I, the answer is that I don't know. I think I can make a lot of assumptions, which is often uh, death penalty states and counties are run by Republicans who have other criminal justice practices and policies that have a really distorting effect on the criminal legal system. Um, they're introducing a lot of financial incentives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still in a lot of places politically popular to be seen as, quote unquote, tough on crime. Um even though tough on crime does not equal smart on crime. Hmm. So in your in your work over the past um, many years, have are there some cases that you just can't shake that you can't oh, get from your mind? Oh, there are so many. I was going to say, <laughs> I'm sure, so yeah. many. only a yeah. couple. <laughs> Could you give us an example of one or two? Let's see. So one actually that I was just thinking about today is the case of a man named Rodney Reed. And I was thinking about it today because I just learned that he was given um, an execution date in November. Uh, This is the case when I was working at the Innocence Project from 2011 to 2015-ish, We had been working on Rodney's case already. We had already successfully, he'd been given, I think, two execution dates in the past. Um, So just, I'll do as quick a rundown of his case as I can. Um, So Rodney Reed is from a small town in Texas called Bastrop. And in 1995, no, 1996, a young white woman named Stacy Stites was uh, was found murdered on the side of the road a year later. So there was no, no arrests, nothing happened for about a year. 
um, and they, they did DNA testing from a vaginal swab and it matched to Rodney Reed who had been having an affair with this woman. This was a claim that many, many, many people corroborated. It was fairly well known, but she was engaged at the time to a man named Jimmy Fennell, who was a police officer in the neighboring town. So if you're just listening to the prosecution side of the case, you know, it seems kind of airtight. You have this black man with a history of sexual violence, um, which is debatable. Rodney had been accused of rape once in the past, but none of this was proved. Um, so they, they painted this picture that he accosted this vulnerable white woman on her way to work. He raped her. He strangled her. He stole her car. And then he abandoned it a couple of blocks away. So given the lack of any other probative biological evidence, the DNA seemed to be this, this glass slipper for the prosecution. Rodney has maintained his innocence ever since he was arrested. He has always said that the DNA can be explained, obviously, by the fact that he and Stacy had been in a relationship for the months leading up to her death. And again, like I said, plenty of witnesses gave sworn testimony corroborating that claim that they were in a relationship. Um, but that none of this actually aligns with the prosecution's versions of events. So they claimed that Rodney drove the victim's car a number of blocks away after the murder and then ditched it in a high school parking lot. And they were also adamant that that Stacy, the victim, had been strangled with a belt that was found close to her body. But the only fingerprints that were in the truck belonged to Stacy, the victim, and to her fiancé, who is this police officer. There were no hairs. There were no other biological traces found on her connected to Rodney, hmm. and no witnesses had seen them together. So the police investigation of her fiancé, this police officer, who was supposedly the last person to see her alive, was perfunctory at best. Despite the fact that they lived together, their apartment was never searched, and the police returned the pickup truck that she had driven the night before they gave it back to her fiance, the police officer, wow. and he immediately sold the vehicle. Right. And then you find out, and of course the jury didn't hear any of this, that Fennell, the police officer, had a really serious pattern of violence towards women. Back in 2015, he was serving a 10-year prison sentence for the kidnapping and sexual assault of a woman while he was on duty and responding to a call for police service. Um, he had also, this wasn't his first offense. He had forced a woman that he met in a traffic stop in Georgetown, Texas to have sex with him. He had abused his now ex-wife and he had also stalked a woman while he was working for the Giddings police department, another small town in Texas. So I'm sorry, so, am I, hear, am I hearing you correctly that he has stalked and raped women yes. in on duty and, yes. and it's at the time, still a police officer. Correct. These incidents were either not reported or they were basically ignored by local law enforcement because he was also an officer. Right. But they, they paint a picture of a pretty dangerous man who abused his police credentials with impunity, abused women with impunity. Um, and again, like I said, none of this was revealed to the jury that convicted Rodney in 96. And despite a court admission that this new character evidence certainly arouses a healthy suspicion that he might have had some kind of involvement in her death, 
all of his attempts to get a new trial um, have been rejected. So it's fairly shocking. And the wow. the evidence, so there was a piece of belt found at the scene that Rodney's uh, attorneys at the Innocence Project have been trying to get tested for a long time. There's multiple pieces of evidence um, that have just never been tested, and it seems they won't be, seeing as Texas just set an execution date for him in November. So I was going to say, so that's what put this back on your radar, is that they set a an execution date for him. Yep. This is, that, that's what you were thinking about this the other day, you said. Um, yes, so, yeah. And I just want to make this clear to the listeners, right? So stop for a second. So this was 96 when he yep. was when he was convicted of this crime. Yes. So in the interim, he's been in prison this whole time. Yep, on death row. Since 1996 till today. Yes, Correct. Wow. Well, and again, you know, I was going to say April's born in 93. So, so that's that yeah. functionally the better part of your life. Yeah. 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 And let's remind ourselves that a death penalty case cost an average of, I think, 2.5 million in Texas at the time. I'm sure it's more than that now. It's at least three times the cost of imprisoning someone in a single cell in the highest security prison for 40 years. So just a phenomenal waste of a human life, of a person, as well as taxpayer money. And so what is the, what is being done about his case, any, if anything? Now? So he, he is represented by fantastic lawyers at the Innocence Project. And the DA in Bastrop County filed this motion saying that he was uh, seeking to schedule his execution in November. Um despite the fact that this DNA, a bunch of these items of evidence have not been tested yet. And the Innocence Project noted, I saw this on their website, this is how it came back to my attention, that this motion came a day after the local newspaper published a piece where Rodney's family had been protesting in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. So they went, they had signs, um, a, a number of the family members came and they were expressing that their their fight to prove his innocence isn't over. Um, this was after the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals uh, denied his appeal for a new trial again. Um, so the Innocence Project, it seemed, was perhaps hinting or insinuating that the execution date had been sent, set rather sort of as retaliation to the family doing mm. this, this public protest symbolically in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. So with a case like Roddy, it seems there obviously there are some issues there like that. That yes. is very clear. Yes. Um, I'm sure that's not always the case. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, if, if you know, you had the, the manpower to look through every case of every mm -hmm. person who's on death row, do you think it would be worth it to look at to look at every single person? Yes. Or or every single person of color, at least. I feel confident in saying that every single death row case has issues like what is occurring in Rodney's. Not everyone is innocent of the crime that they committed, but right. I, I, I feel comfortable in saying that there are errors, very, very serious problems in every single case. I mean, I'm thinking of the things that you've listed off as the problem points with his 
the multiple problems with his his investigation, it would be a big deal if the end result of this were a fine. To me, it it would that would make it a big deal for me. The end result of this right. is is him being killed. Yeah. So to me, that is like that ups the stakes so much more. But I think the opposite is true in a lot of people's mind, especially when it's a black defendant, because yep. the thought is like he must have done. Maybe if he didn't kill her, maybe he just raped her, right? Like, or maybe right. if he yeah. did, you know, maybe he he was the one that stole the car and mm-hmm. she died by accident, but he did yep. something right. wrong. Innocence. He wouldn't have been yep. right. Option. He wouldn't have been caught up in this if he didn't do something wrong, right? Like, it's exactly um, Trump's way of reasoning uh, that the Central Park Five still deserve some kind of punishment when they were exonerated. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure he said, well, you know, they were they were guilty of something. Yeah. And it's, I was going to say, this is the second time we were mentioned that on this on this podcast, because it is striking that he just recently, this is a couple weeks ago, said mm-hmm. exactly that, that like there are people on both sort of pretty much the both sides thing that are yep. arguing both sides of this, that you should really sort of hear him out. Yep. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes along with uh, issues surrounding the death penalty. I think it's very, very hard for people in positions of power uh, to admit when they've done something so egregiously wrong, because like you said, this you can't take back a state murder when you execute someone. It is final. And prosecutors are not historically the best at, you know, looking back at their work and acknowledging or even searching for mistakes. So I think there's just this, this tunnel vision where they, they have a defendant, they have in their mind who they think did it. And then all other information is just interpreted through that hypothesis. And, you know, I'm no psychologist, I'm not the right person to opine on this, but um, that makes a big difference in, in these cases. And that's why it's so incredibly difficult to get a new trial, you know, to, to convince people that despite the fact that a ton of money and resources and manpower went into securing these convictions, that they can be wrong and often they are. Do you ever, after having reviewed so many cases and learned about so many different people's lives. Do you ever find yourself surprised still? In what way? In, in, you know, the audacity of the court, um, or Or are you used to it? Yeah. No, I'm, I try very hard not to be used to it. Um, Mm. the thing, the thing that shocks me most when I'm reviewing these cases is the uniformly horrific upbringing that people on death row endured. Mm. You know, there, like I said, there's no wealthy people, but there's also not many people from stable homes. The vast majority of, of our clients, at least, have either witnessed horrific violence, been subject to horrific violence. Um, there's a lot of mental illness. There's a lot of really serious traumatic head injuries. Um, I just, I can't state strongly enough how vulnerable these people are. And I don't mean to condone murder. I I know that it's hard to talk about capital punishment because it's so emotional. And I understand that. And I never want to seem callous to what victims and their families have gone through. But what shocks me perhaps the most is the court's indifference to the defendant's life up until the point that they committed the crime or perhaps didn't that landed them on death row. 
I mean, it is uniformly, truly, truly shocking, horrifying childhoods, young adulthood. Um, And that is, I have yet to see a single case where that isn't shown. Right. If that even makes it into the evidentiary record, right? Right. Which, Uh. you know, increasingly mitigation is seen as a really essential part of a robust defense for somebody who's facing the death penalty. And I think I think that has a lot to do with why we're seeing so few death sentences recently, because mitigation right. is coming into courtrooms much more frequently. But, you know, at the same time, if you're if you're going to make it to a jury trial, the prosecution is allowed, they they are allowed to ensure that everyone who serves on your jury endorses the death penalty. Hmm. So if you say you know, I, in every other way, I would be a fine juror for this case, but I don't believe in capital punishment, then you won't serve on a death penalty jury. That's it. And that goes to the willingness to enforce the law, right? Like that is, so it's the same as saying, well, jury, if you don't, if juror, if you don't believe in fines in writing, you know, parking ticket violation Mm -hmm. fines, you, you can't be, you can't serve on this jury because you couldn't on this jury because you couldn't fairly implement the law here. And that's a, a potential outcome in this case is, is this person being put to death. Yeah. Jeez. Yep. Well, so this is bleak as fuck and it's very, (laughs) um, (laughs) and I guess the silver lining or the sort of optimistic outlook is that like what you just said, the fewer and fewer, uh, states are actually sentencing people to death now or or there are fewer fewer instances i should say of people being sentenced to death yeah um and public opinion polls show that i you know support for the death penalty is near historic lows it's been i think it peaked sometime in the early 90s and it's just been declining ever since then right weird crime bill um So as we see with so much, so many policies that are sort of moral, morally grounded, Mm -hmm. um, Republican and and right leaning policies, the overwhelming uh, numbers show us that public support isn't behind it. Right. Like so the deputy is one of them. You know, abortion care is another one. Criminal background mm-hmm. checks for guns. Those are that's another one that most people yep. are like on the what I'm going to consider the right side of this issue of these issues. Um, and so and add death penalty to that. And so this is what we ask everyone who comes on the show on this podcast. What can white people who are trying to be advocates and allies and anti-racist mm-hmm. and and reform these systems the way that in a way that makes them all more equitable, what can they do for something like the death penalty? You know, you have people that are doing what you're doing, um, <laughs> which is great work, but I can't, you know. It's a lot. It's a lot. To, what you're yeah. doing is a ton, which is great. <laughs> what can like an average person do to help this particular area, in this particular area? That's a great question. I feel like my answer is not going to be that sexy. No, I, it's, it's, <laughs> I feel like the answer to that question, no matter what you're applying it to, hardly ever is. Yeah, agreed. So in my opinion, the fight for death penalty abolition is going to be won in the states. This, The Supreme Court isn't going to save us. I don't think the federal government is going to save us. So there is a lot of really, really good work being done in on the ground in states that still have capital punishment. So, 
If you are a person that lives in a state that still utilizes capital punishment, I would really encourage you to plug in with organizers in your state. Um, something that I've sort of had to teach myself. I think this is a little bit of a white liberal complex is, you know, you read about something and then you're like, right. that's so bad and shocking. I'm going to start something that makes it better. Right, right. I'm here to tell you someone is already doing it. It's probably a black woman, but someone right. is already doing it. <laughs> someone is on the ground. They have knowledge of the local communities. They know how to do this work best. So I think everybody should have the number of an organizer in their city or state in their phone. Um, I would also say donate to organizations on the ground who are fighting this fight. Some organizations can take volunteers. Some it's a little bit harder to do so. Um, but, but get plugged in with the organizations that know what they're doing. And perhaps most importantly, vote in your district attorney elections. I cannot underscore how important that is. The vast majority of prosecutors are still overwhelmingly white men. And, you know, despite the the bump in coverage of DA elections and an increasing public awareness that they really matter, there's still not great turnout. And the district attorney is going to be the person who decides whether or not to move forward with attempting to try someone for capital murder. I cannot underscore how important it is to get involved in those local elections. So vote, find out who your local organizers are. If you're in a death penalty state, especially, there are almost always vigils on the nights of executions. Mm. Um, you can write you know, letters to the editor in your local paper. If you're white, talk to your older white relatives who are probably more likely to support the death penalty sort of in abstract, really break it down. There's plenty of fact sheets that Southern Center could provide or the Death Penalty Information Center is a great resource as well. Arm yourself with facts and then find out who's been doing this work successfully on the ground and try and plug in with them. That was sexy. I was going to say, yeah. that was like, <laughs> right, like I was going to say, for our podcast, that was like very sexy. <laughs> could have been more wonkish, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that is, um, we... We appreciate that. Um, and that is, that's a lot. I mean, if, if every person who cares about this does one of those things, that is, that is meaningful. So we appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. I think there's really good reason. I know that all of this is incredibly depressing, but it's worth remembering that death sentences, executions, and public support are in decline across the country. Every exoneration kind of chips away at this public faith in the system's right. ability to get it right. Every botched execution is kind of this horrific, morbid reminder that there's no way to kill someone in a nice way without right. suffering. In I a mean, humane just, way, right? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of it's, uh, opposites, right? Yeah. The, the mental gymnastics that one has to employ to support the death penalty in the year 2019 are pretty extreme. Yeah, that's mm. real. Yeah. Well, well. Thanks for, for leaving us on somewhat of a hopeful note, I would say. <laughs> that's why we save that question to last, yeah. always. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's strategic. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation has been, while I'll quote my brother, depressing as fuck or bleak. Um, <laughs> it is it's bleak been as very fuck. illuminating. Good. I've definitely learned a lot. So we want to thank you for speaking with us and taking the time. Um, we really, really appreciate it. So keep doing the work and thank spreading you guys. the word. Well, I appreciate having a platform to talk to you about it. 
that's that's kind of half the battle. All right. Thanks so much, Hannah. Okay. Thank you, guys. And now we're back, and we'll leave you with this episode's action item. So for this episode's action item, uh, I want to challenge all of our listeners, particularly our white ally listeners who are looking to make change. Um, I want to challenge you by asking you to find and join an organization whose mission is to dismantle racism and white supremacy. Um, So you know of Black Lives Matter, I'm sure. There are also groups like Showing Up for Racial Justice or White People for Black Lives, just to name a couple of them. Um, They are all over the country. Um, Organizations like Black Lives Matter has chapters in just about every major city. Um, If you agree with with the mission of these groups, um, we challenge you to to sign up for them, to sign up for those groups and volunteer with them. Donate your money to them. Donate more of your money to them than you think you might want to donate to them. Um, And importantly, spend your time with them. Dismantling racism and white supremacy will not be possible by neutrality and not being racist toward people. Facts. Um, The way that, and I'm putting racist in quotes there, um, it will be dismantled by anti-racism and allyship efforts. Action. Actual action. Um, And you will know that you are being an effective ally if you are experiencing negative consequences to what will feel like negative consequences to yourself, your social standing, your professional standing, your financial standing. Give, that's why I say give more money to these organizations than you think you might want to give to them because you should feel it. You should be able to have a palpable sense of change to your own life, knowing that you're giving up some of your benefits and your privileges of your whiteness in order to try to devote time and energy to dismantling the thing that gives you those privileges. And a reminder to um, any white allies who are going to, you know, engage in these spaces, just a reminder that you are a listener. And while you're there to take action and to and to support the cause, um, when you're in black spaces as a white person discussing and dealing with racism, um, your ultimate duty still is to be a listener and a student and to use your power to uplift the black voices around you and to give them the platform, you know, on which they'll stand and teach you. It's important to not engage in these organizations um, wanting to lead and change, but um, engage as as a student and a listener. You remember that as a white person, by definition, you are just about as unqualified as someone can be to discuss issues of race and racism because of your own lived experience as a white person, not having your race be the reason that people treat you negatively throughout your life. That's tough. Yeah, that's... We get that. That's a tough ask. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so none of this is said lightly. Another big aspect of joining one of these groups that's local to your community is that they will be more keyed into the needs of your particular community as far as race and racism and dismantling those things go. Certain things are worse in certain cities. Um, And so we are giving sort of 
blanket prescriptions on this podcast, but a a chapter of a, a local chapter of a large organization that is aimed at dismantling racism will be able to give you more specific um, day-to-day actions that are that are applicable to your neighborhood. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.